0: Well, this is our Independence Day special at 1819 News, the podcast, where we are going to dive in to what our founders believe. What better way to celebrate the American War for Independence than going back and looking what influenced our founding? And this would be another one of those Theology Thursdays if we published on Thursdays, but we don't. So it's just a podcast where we talk about theology and it's the political theology that drove our founders. That's how we're going to celebrate Independence Day We dive into that in our behind the scenes. We talk about the black robed regimen, which you should be very interested in, uh, as well as what happens when your government is no longer protecting your life, liberty, and property or pursuit of happiness. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast, where we're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. This week, we've got an incredible episode. As always, I'm really excited about this one because we are this will be our Independence Day show, our show that publishes nearest to uh, the great day where we celebrate our Independence uh, from a king across an ocean and in um, tyranny and all of those things. Uh, and we're going to celebrate that by diving even more deeply into something we've touched on before, and that's what our founders believed about resisting tyranny, what our founders believed the Bible had to say about government uh, and the Christians' involvement in the civil sphere. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, but we're going to be going into it with someone who specializes and wrote the book, uh, on the topic that that has really helped develop my thinking. And that is uh, Glenn Sunshine. He's the author of Slaying Leviathan, um, a book that's published by Canon Press. Uh, and to me, it is the best book that you can sit down and read fairly easily that will give you the whole rundown about what our founders believed, uh, the history of uh, what I would call kind of Protestant um, political theory, if you will, Uh, and and just the history of how that developed and how it influenced the founding of our nation. Uh, Incredible book, but Glenn's going to come on to talk to us about that. But before he does, uh, I want to ask you guys to join the fight to become an 1819 News member. If you guys haven't done that, uh, I don't say this at the beginning of every podcast to hear myself talk. We really need you guys to do that. Um, 1819 News has come on the scene, and we are now the second largest statewide publication in the state. We did that within 19 months of beginning since we began publishing, um, we are informing, we're investigating, we're celebrating, uh, we're getting great work done, we're having massive impact, we're uh, telling the people of Alabama about what's going on in their state, why it matters. We're investigating corruption; it's a target-rich environment here in the state. Uh, we're doing that, and we're also celebrating the things about the state that are good, true, and beautiful. And we're doing that on your behalf. So we need you guys to join in. Membership start as little as five dollars a month. Eighteen, nineteen uh the 1819 $18.19 a month uh as well as another level um but Alabama needs 1819 news and 1819 news needs you uh to chip in so please do that with that you'll get access to behind the scenes content like we'll be recording today with Glenn uh and also um you know you, you'll you get different merch uh based on the levels at, at, at which you give so please do that uh go to the website 1819news.com click the button become a member Uh, and do that today so thank you for that and on to the content so let's welcome in uh, Mr. Glenn Sunshine. Glenn thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well thank you for having me. Sorry you had to uh, bear through that whole uh, spiel and pitch that I give at the beginning of every podcast but you know so it goes. You got to do what you got to (laughs) do. That's right. So Glenn, uh, it really is an honor, uh, to have you on, um, I introduced you as the author to slaying Leviathan, but you're also co-host of, is it the theology Pugcast? Is that the name of your podcast? Yes, it um, is pug as in P U G like the dog pugcast, uh, with, Yes. uh, yeah, with, uh, Chris Wiley, uh, you and who's the other fella, Tom price, Tom price. Okay. So that is a great podcast. Uh, If you want to be learning about these things on a regular basis rather than just reading the book, uh, you can get that on all major podcasting apps as well. So Glenn with us, Uh, this episode will be publishing very close to Independence Day, and I thought it would be rather fitting uh, to be able to talk about the theology of our founders as we celebrate uh, such a wonderful day in our independence and, and basically how the Bible fueled uh, the founding of a nation. And so we'll talk about that, but we love story here. We love to hear people's stories. We want to know who we're talking to. So if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you were born, how you grew up, and then, you know, how you got into studying, you know, political theology and and Protestant political theory, or however you would title that, how that became something you were fascinated in. And then we'll talk a little bit about that subject itself.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. Don't hold that against me. Um, (laughs) I'm the uh, youngest of uh, five boys, uh, one sister. Uh, We grew up as, well, to to use a slightly exaggerated phrase, nominal Catholics. Um, My parents didn't even do Christmas and Easter, but they did take us to to church regularly. And one of the key things I got out of that is they taught me to believe that the Bible was the word of God. Now, they never actually suggested I read it. One of my older brothers uh, came to faith and started trying to evangelize my mother. He was talking about the Bible. I thought this would be interesting. My mom walked away. Barry kept talking. And in pretty short order, I uh, I accepted Christ. Uh, Since then, I've moved through a succession of different kinds of churches uh, over the years. I hit pretty much every branch of Western Christianity except the Anabaptists. Um, And... Well, I was sort of a born academic. Uh, the way uh, God created my mind, I, you know, I, I was really made for scholarship. So I eventually uh, made my way into uh, grad school, working in church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, then on to the University of Wisconsin for my doctorate. And while I was there, I worked under a man named Robert Kingdon, and Kingdon. In a lot of ways was the godfather of reformation studies in america among other things he paid a great deal of attention to how the reformation affected politics and so i got my basic education on political theology as it were there um and then i subsequently uh, particularly when i decided to work on slaying leviathan i did a lot of extra study particularly about the earlier centuries and uh, that's really how i got here
0: that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I always just love to hear people's stories uh, to to know where they're coming from uh, when they begin to dive into something. Well, who is this person? What are they talking about? How do they know? Uh, I guess a story is a good qualifier, so good to know that. Um, and again, guys, as you're listening, this book, you know, as as the, the COVID stuff started to happen, um, Pastor Brandon, who's been on the podcast to talk about this subject uh, a little bit as well, Um, he dove into, you know, Rex Lex, um, you know, Samuel Rutherford, he, he went and again, he's a, you know, a vociferous reader, I think is the right word. He reads a ton and he's a pastor and that's what he does. And he got mounds and mounds of books to begin to understand political theology. And what is it that Christians should be doing in this current cultural moment? Uh, as our government was beginning to tell us that, you know, we can't go into our houses of worship on the Lord's day. We, you know, if we do, we can't take the sacraments. You shouldn't sing. I mean just all these crazy things that the government has no right to tell the church. Uh, my pastor felt the weight and responsibility that he needed to really brush up on this stuff and understand it more than brushing up at a deep level so that he could shepherd his flock through an absolute, you know, sphere sovereignty crisis, if you will, um, so that he knew it. And I do not read as much as Pastor Brandon. Uh, and so I'm looking at all those books and just, um, and and uh, rather fortuitous for me, the first one I picked up was glenn sunshine's book slaying leviathan and by reading that i I felt like i didn't necessarily need to read all the other ones i thought you did a fabulous job of really pulling from all the great works of old um and then giving the history of of where these thoughts came from you know i always back it I, i back into it so you know our founders uh in the in the 1700s believed you know this about the bible and this about how christians should be involved in government that was influenced from the puritans the puritans were influenced by the reformers the reformers and the huguenots were influenced uh by you know augustine or augustine depending on how you pronounce that and then obviously he was influenced by the bible and the word of god and so you see this long history uh uh, church history and how that is runs into direct parallel with political history and how the two have influenced each other and i just thought you did a fabulous job of tying all of those things together. And so um, what I'd love to do with you is is to talk about that um, and and just kind of um, what our founders believed and why, I think would be the, the simplest way to tee that up.
1: Okay, well, I think that it would probably do to give you a quick rundown on the history so that you can understand why the founders believed what they believed. Perfect. Um, And and it begins actually with Jesus. Um, Jesus made a a single incredibly important statement about political theology uh, when he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, what that says is that Caesar does have certain things that are legitimately his. The government has certain kinds of God-given roles and responsibilities, and we need to honor those. But the government doesn't control everything. And God is the one that determines what belongs to the government and what doesn't. So that's really our foundational point. So the question always revolves around what is the proper role of government? Now, we'll go from there up to uh, St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine is best known probably for two things. Uh, He develops a strong doctrine of original sin, and with that he develops a doctrine of predestination. I'm going to skip the predestination part. The original sin is what's really important for politics because what it says is that everybody is corrupt and is corruptible and therefore you can't trust anyone with unlimited power government Mm -hmm. must always be limited and must always be based on a system of checks and balances we think of checks and balances as something that we came up with this actually has its roots in augustine and it was believed all through the middle ages And Augustine here, when he's talking about uh, no one can have unlimited power, it's really part of give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Caesar doesn't have all the power. He doesn't have complete authority. So from there, in the Middle Ages, you have a whole bunch of theologians debating over the idea of unalienable rights. Again, we think of that in terms of Jefferson. It goes back to medieval theologians. Uh, They were trying to work out what rights do we have that cannot be taken away from us. And actually, the real idea of unalienable rights is not only can these rights not be taken away from us, but we cannot surrender them. They are unalienable. They come from God himself, and only he is in charge of those. And through the Middle Ages, you get, well, first of all, the idea of life. God gave that to us in the garden, so we can't arbitrarily take human life. We get the idea of liberty, Uh, God, liberty is the idea of freedom to act within a set of boundaries, within the boundaries uh, established by divine and natural law. So in the Garden of Eden, they had liberty to eat any tree they wanted to, except that one over there. Uh, That was the boundary condition that made it liberty. Um, That's one of these things we don't frequently understand. Liberty always exists within constraints. Um, So we have life, we have liberty, and actually they also derived a right uh, to property as well. So we have these ideas of unalienable rights circulating in the Middle Ages. When you get to the Reformation, Luther comes along and, um, you know, a number of the princes in Germany decided to follow him against the will of not only the Pope, but the Holy Roman Emperor. So Luther uh, was left in a situation where He was reluctant to do this, but he was eventually convinced that there were legitimate reasons to resist the emperor. If the emperor violated the constitution, the de facto constitution of the Holy Roman Empire, if he uh, broke his word, if he acted illegally, it was the duty, he said, of the princes under the emperor to resist him. This is the origin of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Mm. And this is the beginning of Protestant resistance theory. Okay. So the doctrine of the lesser magistrates says that well in the United States if president Biden issues an executive order that is illegal the governors of the states or the mayors of towns or whatever as lesser magistrates as members of the government below the highest authority they would have a, re- a duty to resist that. Yeah, okay, not so only that, a
0: right but a responsibility. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and yep. it's interesting in the state of Alabama, I'll, I'll chime in here. We uh, probably have the clearest picture of, of the doctrine of the ledger ma- lesser magistrate happening before our very eyes that happened from a conservative. The left does it all the time. They're intimately familiar with this doctrine. They have sanctuary cities. You know, they were setting up pot shops when the federal government said that you couldn't, they went ahead and did it anyway. Right. And, and they, they always have resisted at the lesser levels, but here in Alabama, when Obergefell passed, um, Judge Roy Moore, he was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he said, absolutely not. We will not recognize this. None of my judges are to issue you know, marital license between same-sex couples and all of these things. And he was removed, right? And it was the second time he got removed because he was told that he had to take the Ten Commandments out of uh, out of the, uh, uh, the courts as well. And he said, yeah, that's not going to happen on my watch. So he was removed twice now. <laughs> Um, for doing exactly that, right? And and I think he's actually written on the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, and uh, Matt Truel has got a wonderful treatment on it as well. Um, The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, uh, worth getting, but uh, go ahead, Glenn.
1: Yeah. So from here, we have to actually switch over a second from Germany to Switzerland, actually to Geneva. Um, Calvin um, adds something really important into the mix here. Calvin looks at Uh, the book of Exodus, and he sees that when God is establishing himself as ruler over Israel at Sinai, when he sets up the covenant there, he did it in the form of covenant. So he asked the people three times, do you agree to abide by the terms of this covenant? And three times they agreed. And at that point, the covenant was ratified, and God was their, well, covenantal king. Calvin said, you know, if this is the way God himself establishes government on the earth, then all earthly governments are properly set up as covenants. This is frequently referred to as Calvinist contract theory. That's wrong. It should be Calvinist covenant theory.
0: Mm.
1: But um, there, it, uh, The way this develops in France among the Huguenots, there are two covenants. There's one between the king, excuse me, between God and, on the one side and the king and the people on the other um, to agree to abide by God's law. And then there's a second covenant between the king and the people uh, that establishes a specific form of government. Now, this creates a situation in which you have a structure to think about resistance. If the king breaks the covenant, then in France, they say the lesser magistrates have the, the duty to resist the king when he breaks the covenant. Now, when you cross the channel to England, they're going to take this a step further. They're going to say, well, wait a minute. The covenant is between the king and the people. Therefore, you don't, it's not between the king and the lesser magistrates. So if the king breaks the covenant, the people have a direct right to resist the king. Mm. And at that point, you have all of the key elements together that'll be pulled together by John Locke and then uh, adopted, really, in the United States.
0: Wow! And so, and I know we're going to lose some people on this, but the 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 feudalist system—that's kind of where you begin to see that as well, right? The contract or the covenant between lord and vassal. What a lot of people—the only thing they see is when the vassals, the, you know, that wouldn't be by definition citizens, but to help our people, our listeners wrap their head around what we're talking about, there's the king and then there's the people that are supposed to serve the king who are under the king. And all you ever hear about is the the, the responsibilities of those that they have to the king. What you never really heard much about was the king's responsibility to the subjects. And, right. and that is where this really began to help me understand what was Thomas Jefferson writing about, talking about when he had a long list of injuries and usurpations in the Declaration of Independence? Well, he was basically saying this is where the king has broken the covenant. The king has a responsibility to his subjects. The subjects have a a duty to um, to submit to his authority and to do these certain things. But with that comes the king's responsibility to provide for, protect, and all of these other things. And I don't remember exactly line by line what those were, but you see that in every situation where God commands one person to submit to another or a group of people to submit to someone, there's that you see that. When you get married, you have the father who has certain, you know, the husband, he has a a duty to protect and provide and to teach his wife about Christ. And then he tells her, you're going to enter into this covenant and you're going to submit and you're going to be a helper to, and so you see this happening all over the place throughout Scripture, uh, and and they're taking that and applying it really to the government, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, well, a, a couple of things from here. First of all, when you look at Ephesians, uh, for example, they're the household codes, uh, the instructions of, you know, the responsibilities of slaves to masters, masters to slaves, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, and so on. And um, What's interesting about that is there were household codes in the ancient world as well that actually predated the ones in the New Testament. The difference between them is that the ancient household codes always talked about the duty of the subordinate to the superior. Mm -hmm. They never talked about reciprocal duties of the superior to the subordinate. The New Testament actually lays the foundation for this idea that there are reciprocal responsibilities. Yes, the subordinate needs to submit to the superior, but the superior, in turn, has responsibilities to the subordinate. This was not recognized in the ancient world, yeah, so when you get when you get to feudalism, you know moving out of the household context, feudalism is a political system. It actually doesn't include the peasants. It's one of these things that people get wrong in technical terms. Feudalism only has to do with government. But what you've got is the king, and under the king, you have these people called vassals who are also parts of the government, and they have vassals under them and so on. And at each level, there is an an exchange of oaths uh, between the superior and the inferior here, the lord and the vassal. Uh, The lord typically would promise the vassal uh, a grant of land, uh, the right to govern the land, uh, and protection, and in return, the vassal would promise loyalty, military service, um, and under certain circumstances, cash. Okay, mm. but the point is that there are oaths sworn between both sides, and there are responsibilities to both sides. And if one side breaks it, uh, it well usually results in in war. Well, and so I
0: mean, go ahead.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. It doesn't directly lead us to protestant resistance theory, but you can see the basic ideas are floating around all through the middle ages.
0: When did protestant resistance theory, you know, and I, and I guess so you had, uh, going back to the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and we'll go to the founding. Is it something that began to grow, uh, uh, and, and manifest itself in different ways that we can kind of go back and look at?
1: Yeah, well, it starts off with um, a thing called the Schmalkaldic League, which was a bunch of Lutheran princes inside the Holy Roman Empire that set up a mutual defense pact uh, against the emperor, if the emperor should try to stamp out Protestantism. Uh, They came to Luther asking his blessing, and Luther said, no, I can't do that because of Romans 13. Um, They then sent in some lawyers to argue with Luther, which was probably a smart thing to do. Um, And the lawyers pointed out that the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire uh, had the emperor as an elected position. And since he was elected by the princes, the princes had a duty to oversee him. And thus, well, this leads you directly to the the argument for the lesser magistrate. So that's how it begins. When you get to France, um, you've got Calvin's influence on covenant stuff going on here. Uh, when it gets to France, what you see happening is during the Wars of Religion where the uh, the, the Catholic monarchy was trying to stamp out the Protestants, uh, they develop this further. They adopt the basic ideas there, but they they sharpen it and develop it further. And then, like I said, it crosses the channel, and in England, you get this uh, this idea of it moving from the lesser magistrates to the people, moving ahead from there, skipping a lot of stuff in between. What you see happening with John Locke um, in his two treatises on government is he combines all of these different threads. The idea of limited government, the idea of unalienable rights coming from the medieval theologians, the idea of, uh, well, Protestant resistance theory uh, rooted in the people rather than in the lesser magistrate, and the idea of government as, well, he secularizes Calvin's covenantal idea to contract theory. So he synthesizes all of this and says that, okay, government consists of a contract between the king and the people, or between the government of whatever form it takes and the people. Um, if the king or uh, or the government breaks the covenant or breaks the contract, then the people can consider that contract dissolved, and they have the right to rebel and to replace the government with another one more to their tastes breaking the covenant by the way the government's primary purpose is to protect people's unalienable rights of life or liberty and property so if the government violates those um it's breaking the, it's breaking the covenant at a very fundamental level and therefore you have the right of rebellion and replacing the government with one that you think is more suitable to your interests. Now, that crosses the Atlantic Ocean with Thomas Jefferson. If you read the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, especially if you see it punctuated correctly with a comma at a critical point rather than a period, what you have is a very concise summary of Locke's entire theory of government. You know, put in a nutshell, the only change is that Jefferson uh, switched right to property to uh, right to the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And that, in turn, comes from bringing Aristotle in. Um, Aristotle believed that the goal of life, the purpose of life, was to strive for a state that he called eudaimonia, uh, which really refers to a life well-lived, uh, uh, a truly good life, a uh, uh, fulfilled life in every sense of the word. Um, that w- that term eudaimonia was translated into English frequently as happiness. So when Jefferson says pursuit of happiness, what he's saying is that the government can't take away the people's the the people's right to the purpose of their their own existence, mm. which is to achieve the state of eudaimonia. It's also worth noting that to Jefferson, the only way you could achieve eudaimonia is if you had property, hmm. because you needed you needed the resources to give you the leisure to pursue this higher, a uh, uh, higher form of, of uh, lifestyle. Interesting. So, so he sort of sneaks property in the back door, but he connects it into Aristotle's ideas there.
0: Hmm. Okay. So, um, we see that kind of formulating with, um, with Jefferson, uh, with Locke. Um, there's much to say a lot of people say that, you know, Oh, uh, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Thomas Jefferson cut up things out of his Bible and all of these other things. What would you say that was the, the overall general understanding of government, the need for God? I mean, there's, there's so much evidence that you find where I forget who says all of it, but it's like, you know no the basis of freedom is a moral people and you can't have a moral people a moral citizenry without a religion and there's no better religion than christianity or something to that effect um and that was from one of the deists supposedly can you talk about that
1: yeah um i would not well let let me just comment on jefferson sure and uh, not jefferson uh franklin okay. uh, i actually quote this on several pages in Slaying leviathan Um, A deist says, starting on page 176, if you have the book, a deist says that God does not intervene in the world. God created the world, basically he kickstarts it, and then he sits back and doesn't do anything with it. Franklin argued, I I won't read it, it's, it's, it's really long, but Franklin argued that when you look at the revolution, you can see the hand of divine providence all over the place. And the only way the revolution succeeded, according to Franklin, was because people put in a lot of prayer. And he therefore recommended that the a Constitutional Convention, which was stuck at a number of points, begin all of their sessions with prayer. That's not a deist. Yeah, Deists don't do that. If he is a deist, he's a very bad deist. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean he's a Christian. Yeah. Um, uh, Jefferson was a Unitarian rationalist. Again, he's frequently described as a deist. He wasn't. He was a Unitarian rationalist. Um, uh, he commented at one point that when I consider that God is just I, and, and judges people, I tremble for my nation. Yeah. So he saw God not as a deist would see him, as one who intervenes and enforces justice. Now, he wasn't an evangelical Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a religious uh, commonality, even even with people that you wouldn't expect it. Uh, overall, all of the founders really had a a, a sense of of God's existence, um, a sense of natural law, morality, um, a sense of of justice, and all of these kinds of things. That was just. Uh, was, Well, they came out of a Christian culture, and even where they turned away from Christianity, they still retained a great deal of Christian ideas of virtue and so on. So um, the founders were not by any stretch all deists. Many of them were were firm Christians. Yeah, Um, And you you have sort of a split between the two. But even, even those who were not really Orthodox Christians had a considerable amount of christianity in them because it was part of their cultural environment um and just it was in the air it was it was in the water they drank and in, in the air they breathed mm. this was just part of the culture so deeply embedded that it it shaped them
0: yeah and i mean we're still in in uh, the reserves are running dry but we're still you know our nation the the thriving pieces that are left of our nation is thriving from borrowed capital from christendom still Right. The only things driving our country forward uh are the remnants of Christianity and, and Christendom, uh when we were a nation that acknowledged God. Um and you know, and and that's obviously uh sorely lacking uh now. Wanna, we've got about ten minutes left, um, and I wanna um dig in um one of the things I read in the book that I thought was just Uh, really interesting. Um, you broke down kind of three systems of government, uh, that have, you know, uh, existed, uh, historically, uh, monarchy, aristocracy and Republic. And when those things become perverted, uh, monarchy, uh, turns to tyranny, aristocracy turns to oligarchy and a Republic turns into democracy. And so democracy is worshiped in this, this country. And again, you know, and it, and it shouldn't be, and it's this idea of you know who should vote, and and all of these different things. And talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think it's really easy as, easy for us to see a monarchy when a when a monarch begins to uh, govern and legislate or rule in such a way as to to fatten his pockets and to serve his needs and desires over that which who he's covenanted with to provide for. Uh, he's now turned into a tyrant, and I would say that's what happens in uh, in a household or you know in in other places where you have someone who begins to rule in any which way that's for their their own benefit rather than those under their care, they become tyrants. Uh, An aristocracy, um, you could make the argument that a natural aristocracy is always going to exist, um, but what made America unique is that anyone could rise to the level of being an aristocrat. If they were born poor, they could still heighten themselves to be in kind of an, uh, an aristocratic state. Well, the aristocracy has a responsibility for those who are under them. And when they, when they lose that sense of responsibility and they begin to use that arist- aristocratic um, authority to benefit and behoove themselves, they now have become an oligarchy. And we see that in Alabama with the major power brokers that we have in our state. The legislature doesn't run our state. Yeah, sure, we have a president. Sure, we have a governor. Sure, we have a legislature. But at the end of the day, you've got four big corporations that run this state. And the people who run in those circles and, and serve under them – it's an oligarchy, and they don't care about the people. They care about their interests, and we're suffering uh, under under the hand of of oligarchy in that regard. But I think this one is the most interesting, and what I want you to talk about is the that uh, a republic is a representative republic, and that means certain people that have a certain station in life, not everyone has the right to vote, but certain people who are at a certain station in life are responsible uh to have a representative republic talk about that versus democracy and this kind of I- idolatry of democracy we have in our nation.
1: Okay, yeah. Um the analysis here of the three forms of government comes from Aristotle. Um and he it in particularly in terms of democracy, he had direct experience of what happens when you have a democracy. You know, we praise Athenian democracy as this great wonderful thing. Aristotle saw it in action and he he condemned it as degenerate. So that's worth considering here. So, yeah. so what's the difference between a republic and a democracy? Um, a republic is government by representation. Um, it doesn't have to be elected representation. It can be representation done like in medieval republics. It was done through guilds. The guild masters represented the guilds and their members uh, on the city councils. As long as it's representative, it's, it's a republic. Um, we have what you could arguably call a democratic republic in that we have elections um and there's a very wide franchise in the country among citizens um a democracy is not rule through representation uh a democracy is direct rule by the people so um you uh you know basically it's sort of an extreme form of populism whatever the people want the people get yeah and the problem with this is um well for example in Athens well, no, let, let's hold off. Let's explain the problem and then look at the example. Okay. Uh, the problem is that the, the, the people, the demoi of the democracy, the demoi in Greek, it can also be translated the mob, um, the, 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 the demoi in, in, in Greek, the, the just sort of general run of the people, um, Aristotle was afraid that they would be ruled primarily through emotion and not through reason. Yeah and that you would get a mob ruler greek demagogue who would come up and could sway the passions of the people whichever way he wanted to and the people would just follow um you know th- this has been studied over and over again with with mob psychology the madness of crowds all of these kinds of things people don't act the same way in large groups as they would as individuals yeah and so if you get the demagogue who can sway the passions of the people they can make really really bad decisions because you need to use reason you need to use your mind to come up with uh, proper policy pr- uh, proper laws those kinds of things in athens the way this works out during the peloponnesian wars is there were uh there was at least one general who had lost the battle and the people of Athens were so angry at him losing this battle that they condemned him to be executed. Mm. Because what the people want, the people get. Yeah, It's worth noting that I, I think our government is— well, in theory, our government is set up with uh, a monarchical principle. Each of these governments has its strengths and weaknesses. Our government is set up in principle with with the, the president— uh, occupying the monarchical principle the senate occupying the oligarchic principle and the house uh as the representatives it's called the house of representatives okay so that's the republican principle that's the that's the theory and the idea that which we lose by the way as soon as we start directly electing senators yeah the senator is supposed to represent the state Direct election means it's just another representative of the people like in the House. Yeah. So this is a breakdown of the system there. But the idea was that the different branches of government would compete with each other so that, you know, the the uh, the president is going to want to expand his power, but the House and Senate will act together to stop him. The Senate will want to expand its power, but the president and the House will act as a check on it and the president and the senate then will act as a check on the house there's this idea that they're going to be jealous enough for their own power that they're not going to allow anybody else to usurp it to 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 yeah. grow too strong that's the theory um it's also worth noting that the founders did not allow for political parties originally mm. Um, And the reason for that was they were afraid that if you had a political party, alliances would form across the branches of government, and this would destroy the system. Sounds familiar. That's exactly what ended up happening. Yeah. So what you have in this country right now is actually an oligarchy, although it is not necessarily a political oligarchy. As you suggested in Alabama, it could be an economic oligarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Big big tech firms, those kinds of things. Yeah. You also have a politics, though, that is driven primarily by emotion. Yeah. Um, both the left and the right operate by creating outrage machines. Yep. Yeah. And uh, this is especially true on the woke left, but it's also true. I mean, the entire woke left program is based on outrage. Yeah. It is also to some extent true uh, among, well, an unfortunately large number of conservatives who are also operating on the basis of raising outrage and functionally giving in to the democratic impulse that Aristotle recognized as being destructive.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I would definitely consider myself a populist, but when you look at kind of historically what is a populist and how does that fit into the actual grand scheme of these real thoughts, it's like, well, that then that means that the populist wouldn't necessarily be good. But when you look historically at what has happened in the state of Alabama – um, you know, the populists were the Democrats, the big business, you know, they were the Republicans, uh, big business was actually preying on the people, right? They had poor business practices that were harmful to the people. So they were in, in essence, breaking that covenant there that they had, they weren't taking care of the people that were in subjection to them. Uh, and so you begin to get trial lawyers and you begin to get unions and trial lawyers and unions actually did exist for a good purpose to prevent, big business from preying on the people well then those things took off and they got out of control you know and unions turned into their own thing and trade you know uh, trial lawyers turned into their own thing and that's a a crap show now and as that was happening the democrat party began to go so far left over into this woke craziness that it is now that the populists were actually abandoned and so the 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 populist didn't have anywhere to go so the populists um and and what we I always defined populist as before kind of hearing this lesson was if you work for a paycheck, <laughs> you're a populist. And and so the populist moved over into the Republican party. And so within the Republican party, you actually had two political parties. You have big business and that you can see that clear as day in Alabama. We call them chamber of commerce Republicans. Uh, and then you have your populist base, which is your, your Trump, you know, uh, Trump voting class of, uh, of conservatives. What's really interesting is there's a, there's a ton of big business people in Alabama that love Trump too. But Um, you know, the decisions that are made in Montgomery, which is our capital, are made along those lines. Are the people going to get anything or is big business just going to get what they want like they always do? And you kind of see this restructuring um, around those things. And it would be nice if the people didn't have to focus and pay attention to everything that was going on constantly and they weren't being lied to and stabbed in the back by those who have, you know, supposed to represent them. And if there was a aristocracy in Alabama rather than an oligarchy, I think that would actually be Bring tremendous peace to the average, uh, Alabamian. But it's not. We have, um, you know, the people who who should be in that place have decided to line their own pockets and serve themselves, and it puts us into this mess that we're in. Um,
1: yeah, there. Yeah, I, I should say that there's not when when I compare democracy to the populists. Yeah, there there is a place for it. Yeah. Um. there, there you know, populists, uh, they're needed. Uh, to counteract some of some of this but i was trying to find a way of of illustrating what what is meant by democracy you don't get direct democracy but it is
0: mob rule still but it's like if mob rules the only way we can stop what's going on then then give me the mob right and then then marx came in and took it to a whole different level you know and is like every disgruntled potential group i can get i'm going to tell them they're being oppressed and i'm going to set them on fire you know and and he really took it to a completely different um different level that's not a, not real grievances but perceived grievances and then like you said turning it into an outrage machine so you can see how it's dangerous that um you know go to the bible on palm sunday they were waving palm branches you know to Jesus and then a week later he was crucified so the the mob yep. as you said uh is is a, is a dangerous uh dangerous thing but um, this is all really interesting, and this is why I think it's really good for us to know and have a deep understanding, uh, a historic understanding of how we got to where we are and the fact that the that Christianity and the Bible are in the conversation the entire time until like a few years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like now all of a sudden we're trying to pretend like, oh, we don't need the Bible to, to to form or shape or think. And it's like, no, the Bible has been front and center the whole time. And what we'll talk about in our behind the scenes segment I want to talk a little bit about the black robe regimen. Um, we talked about, you know, Oh, our founders were deists or whatever. Well, actually George Washington had 10 colonels, nine of which were Presbyterians. And I think the other was an Anglican. Um, you know, the, the, the British talked about, you know, talked about, um, you know, this was the Presbyterian conflict. That's what they kind of referred to it as. And so, um, anyway, I don't want to give away too much of what we're talking about behind the scenes. And we'll talk a little bit more about, the government's responsibility to protect life, liberty, uh, and property, and what happens when they don't. So you guys don't want to miss that. That'll be in our behind-the-scenes segment. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much um, for, for taking the time to come on and, and give us this lesson.
1: Again, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: So Glenn Sunshine, uh, Slang Leviathan, Canon Press. Can they get it on Amazon if people don't know how to go to Canon Press?
1: Yes, you can get it on Amazon. I would encourage you, however, to pay just a little more and get it from Canon. I'd rather have them make the profits
0: than Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it's canonpress.com. So, canonpress.com. C A N O N press.com. Go there. Uh, You might find a whole bunch of stuff you like, but um, go into their search tab and put uh, Slaying Leviathan or put Glenn Sunshine's name and his book will pop up. Highly encourage you to get that book. Read it. It will. Uh, changed the way you look at everything, uh, and it's absolutely changed my life um, in in one book. So that's really good. Uh, and then also wherever podcasts are found, you have the Theology Pug P U G Cast, um, where they talk about these issues uh, and and much more with a, a couple other really uh, intelligent chaps that all three of you guys are far beyond my thinking capacity. So uh, glad to be able to learn from you. All right, well that'll wrap it up for this week um, and. As always, guys, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.